Are you curious about how you might have a more fulfilling work life? Well, you're not alone. In fact, the numbers show us that many of us want more fulfilling work lives. I'm Susan Mikriadon, your host. And as a finance director, ops director and leadership coach, who has lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. But one thing that I've learned that is common to us all is that we are all unique and have unique experiences and perspectives. So join me and my guests as we place a lens on the people side of work life and explore ways to let your uniqueness shine through by sharing insights, stories, strategies and techniques to inspire your work life. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by John Shinnick. John, you're very welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. And it's great to be talking to you, Susan. Great. Well, John, you're up in Manchester, I believe. Uh, yeah, have been, except when I leave the continent, but currently in Manchester. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I spent a good few years up in Manchester and loved the place. Great city. Uh, it is. It's it's. Uh, it's really interesting. I literally live in the centre of the city, so I was here through the whole of lockdown, and it was like one of those uh, zombie apocalypse movies during the daytime. It was the place was actually empty. I'm actually a photographer as well, so I took some images, and they were picked up by the Architects Journal. Darling, oh. I've been published in the Architects Journal. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, it was really good. Uh, there was one image that because I could, a bit like my father, I could play around with it with imagery. And I published an image with a herd of elephants walking past in front of the Midland Hotel. Nobody commented. <laughs> what? It's Manchester, you know. We're all on. So we must all be on something. Anyway, go on. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> well, I was looking at your website, John, and one of the phrases that just popped or hopped out at me, I suppose, is numbers don't make decisions, people do. And, you know, having spent a long time working with others, the numbers often get blamed <laughs> or the numbers are the reason we make decisions or whatever. And it's just a really interesting perspective. So maybe you'd tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's I'm very lucky with the people that have kind of been around my life. And that was my cousin. So I'm working as a psychiatric nursing assistant, having dropped out of university, wondering what, the, what I'm going to do with life. I love the psychiatric nursing. It's 12-hour shifts, and uh, I'm a bit of a capitalist, and there's no money in it. So he was, at the time, living in the British Virgin Islands. He was a chartered accountant, and he was told to sort my head out. And he said that to me. I said, I love people. He said, well, just do the maths, because numbers don't make decisions. People do. He said, get through it. And then you'll actually find that you spend most of your time dealing with people's fears and aspirations. And he was absolutely right. Absolutely nailed on with that. Lovely fella. I mean, that is amazing advice to give someone who's going into accountancy because a lot of people might choose accountancy because they don't have to deal with people or so they think. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, the, the range of people that you 
see well in any profession but in in accountancy if there was a if there was continuum you would tend to find them grouped down sort of one end with a few outliers but it's it's probably that that backdrop of having left university I passed my exams at university just didn't want to continue so I dropped out I was actually doing a BCom so my mother had a BCom but was of an age where women didn't actually go into accountancy really so I was doing that and I didn't really like it god this sounds like a disaster film so I left university to get away from accountancy and then ended up back in it. But where was I going? It's the people thing uh, that even though I took on the numbers as um, a way of analysing situations, I kept on getting drawn back to uh, how do people think? Why do they do it? Yeah. Yeah. And being an activist and a, somebody who kind of doesn't enjoy education, but likes learning things, I kind of um, got onto a trail of trying to understand more about how people do things. So I became a neuro-linguistic programming practitioner. I can say it, I can't say it, but I can do it. I trained as a clinical hypnotherapist, pretty weird when you're a partner in an accounting firm. Qualified as an EMCC coach, it's the European Mentoring and Coaching mm. Council, and just read quite a lot in that area, but all with the aim of being a better advisor, not to be a, a psychotherapist or a psycho psychoanalyst. Matt, so you were doing this while working as a partner in an accounting yeah. firm? Yes, a bit like sneaking out to an illegal drinking hole. I was off doing it over here in the corner and then uh, applying it. And I think improving the way in which I was able to get behind the surface of a business. Because everything has got a surface and then it's got a, a deep sub thing. And if you can get into the sub thing, then you really get to understand. Well, you get a better understanding of what's going on. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you the classical example. You say to a, a British chap, how are you? He'll say, I'm fine. And I'm fine disguises a myriad of things. It could be, I'm fine, except that my business is collapsing. I'm fine, except I had an argument with my wife this morning. I'm fine, but I've got a headache. But they'll come up with this, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. And what those uh, broader NLP skills and, and hypnotherapy skills give you is the ability to Get, get behind that and just continue questioning beyond where people would normally expect you to question. Mm. And so, okay, you were doing it over here in the corner. Yeah. Did, did you tell people? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was running the, the team in Liverpool at the time, I think it was. For the NLP, I had to take two days off a month to do it. So okay. I, I, I told them I was doing it. They just thought I was that. Well, I, I was always regarded as a bit of an outlier. So the unusual computer-throwing client who looked like he might either uh, scream or cry at any moment, they go, John, we think this is one for you. Yeah. Uh, but they were the most interesting people. Wow. And it continues to be. Yeah. yeah. So, so you stayed with accountancy for a number of years, uh, John. Well, let's call it 37. Wow. Okay. That's quite a number of years. So you get to uh, 2013 and in big accountancy firms, once a year, they have a look around and go, oh, we need to tidy up the numbers here a bit. Cull. Uh, yeah, the cull. So I was in the 2013 cull and I'd, I'd worked out what was going to happen because I'd, I'd, been, I'd been in the firm for a long time. So noises came in through the windows. So when the phone lit up, for a meeting room at five o'clock on a Friday, I danced into the room and was up and out. I was with Grant Thornton, brilliant firm, because they gave you the opportunity to uh, reinvent yourself every few years. 
which is a good way of kind of, it was a Doctor Who thing, but it works really well. And they gave me a beautiful exit and I left there with a bag of knowledge, no real clear idea about what I was going to do with it. And what did you do with it? Well, I tried the sitting quietly in a corner enjoying um, retirement, but of course that didn't work. So I then opened the bag up and thought, right, well, I, got the, I don't have to worry about the numbers because if you show me numbers, they're just automatic. And I've got all these other things. Uh, I've actually got this coaching qualification. So what I'll do is I'll offer myself out as a coach. And that, that, that was all right, really. And I enjoy uh, purist coaching, except I, don't, I can't do purist coaching. So it's the thing that I became was coach, mentor, advisor, which is continuum. So you get coached down this end, which is I'll develop you. You've got mentor, which is I'll guide you by using the mistakes I've made in the past. And then you've got advisor, which is I'll roll my sleeves up and I'll work with you. And even when I was, when I'm advising, I'm usually coaching. Uh, when I'm coaching, I'm usually mentoring. Uh, but the individual doesn't care as long as they feel that they're, they're moving forwards. Uh, so I had, had this bag of things. So I said, go on, I'll do a bit of uh, uh, coaching, mentor, advising. And another wise person said that if you want to change direction, uh, change voice. So by that, it's how you present yourself, what you talk about, uh, how you introduce yourself, just how people see you. Call it brand. Mm. So the, the, there'd be people out there in 2013, they've got John Shinnick, yeah, entrepreneurial advisory partner, uh, da, 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 da. So then I changed my voice to corporate coach, executive coach, do a bit of mentoring, will help you if there's something that needs solving. And that's what I talked about. That's what I blogged about. That's how I presented myself. And that's how I became to be known. So there are people now who know me who don't know what I did for those 37 years. And then I've got different strands where people know me for other things. If LinkedIn, that's who I am. And the beauty of having unconsciously networked for 30 years is that the network goes, oh, oh, that's interesting. You can't help me, but I've got a friend. So the work and opportunities come to me just because somebody, I'll get a phone call and it'll be, I've been told I have to have a word with you. Um, and that'll be it. And maybe after a couple of hours, I'll say, who told you? <laughs> and that's, that's pretty well the way that it works. So I was, I was doing quite strong a purist coaching which is really good but really intense I find it really well absorbing go and have a lie down afterwards and then I had a couple of assignments where I, maybe I was coaching the CEO and we get to an end of a six-month program or even a 12-month program it'd be well I'd say look we, we can't have you can't become dependent so I'm off and they basically uh, cling to my leg and go don't leave me uh, in fact come in and sort out the rest of the team become our board advisor and that's pretty well where it has gone to. So I now act either as a, a statutory non-exec or chair or as board advisor. Brilliant. And I've currently got, currently got what I call three big roles, which would be two days, maybe two and a half days a month, and then three small roles, which would be half a day to a full day a month. Uh, I deliberately keep my committed time to about 35% or less for a reason. One, I've done that stupid hours. They don't work full time. I've got other things to do. But the other reason is uh, that I want to deliver quality. So I'm working with somebody for two days a month and then suddenly they need me for a fortnight solidly because they're acquiring something or they're going through a big a strategic change. And I want to be able to go with two phone calls. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah. 
and that freedom of time allows me to do it. Yeah, and not have to cancel everyone else. Yeah, yeah. And the NLP and the hypnotherapy are great because I tend to control the diary. Yeah. So as I start an engagement, I'll go, it'd be really good if we met on, and I do hope some of my clients re- listen to this because I recognise it. Uh, well, let's work with each other two days a month. And uh, what I'll do is I'll send you some suggested dates. And that helps me and actually helps them because it means they get uh, consistency and they get the full attention that they should do because I'm, I'm able to work it that way. Absolutely. Yeah. So you talked about people's fears and aspirations, you yeah. know, understanding that. So maybe what are the common fears you come across what holds people back or where do they stumble in the workplace john uh, right okay so my sweet spot isn't uh, FTSE 100 i've worked in FTSE and it's it tends to be businesses turning over say two or three million up to about 20 million and what you tend to find is that they are quite tightly held management teams you tend to have the founder ceo or the two founder ceos and uh, a team then of maybe five or six key people. There's a thing called the Dunbar number, right? Hold that thought. I'll come back to the Dunbar number. Um, uh, and what you tend to find is the people I'm working with, one of the reasons they're working with me is they're going through growth. And if you read Kafka's Metamorphosis, basically it's a bloke in a room and he basically becomes a, a cockroach. But every now and then, things like cockroaches and snakes, they shed their skin. They go through a painful period. Lobsters do it. They go, they go through a painful period. They break out of that skin. And for a period, things are really sensitive. And then they build a new carapace. Uh, and what you tend to find is men and women leaders failing to let go, failing to trust, uh, knowing that they have to, but fearing doing it. So... I've currently got a couple of organisational change pieces going on and they're both based around strong leaders who know that they could literally double or treble their business if they can just leverage their team. And that means handing over accountability, responsibility and authority. And then there there are the simple fears of, well, it's it's that classical thing. You only have to worry about 7% of the things that you worry about, but you don't know which 7%. Uh, and what people do is they, uh, you, when you have fear or when you think forwards, you're creating a false reality. Yes. And some of the psychological skills I have is to help people understand when they are creating a false reality. Now, the weird thing is all art is based on false reality. So Michelangelo has got a block of marble. And in fact, I think the classical was the architect who's asked, how do you carve an elephant? He said, but you take a block of marble and then you chip away all the bits that aren't elephant. So there's a, there's a positive side to uh, false reality, and that is creating a positive future. But usually, quite often, people create negative futures. So it's helping them understand. It's the classic, control what you can, tr- can control and then see what you can do with the other stuff it's fascinating really isn't it that oh god yeah that we kind of imagine doom and gloom or the things that will go wrong as opposed to thinking wow the world is my oyster well take the classic uh right okay email arrives i want to see you in my office at five o'clock on friday oh that's it i'm getting the sack (laughs) no here's your bottle of champagne uh we're promoting you 
but there's a natural instinct to uh, uh, look for what's the risk here? How do I protect myself rather than do I dance into the room? But also what you said then about the, the, the strong leaders, male or female leaders who don't want to let go or don't want to trust. I mean, what is it something common that holds them back? Or is it very individual based on, I don't know, their life to date, for example? It's, it's going to be, a, it always feels like one of those Pareto rules, an 80-20 or a 60-40. There, there are no absolutes. We all have preferences. And what you will tend to find is, you think of the classic, uh, well, I could give it to my number two to do, uh, but I can do it better. Or by the time I've explained to him what I need, I might as well have done it myself. And that is self-justification. And if you can break that pattern, you break a lot. I, I, I use the example of a guy called Tiny Rowland who ran a business called Lonro, uh, London Rhodesia. And at his peak, he had something like 140 companies. Uh, and I worked it out that he had 20 minutes a month for each company. If, if he actually allocated time to them, which he didn't. What he did was he dealt with the things that needed to be dealt with. And the reason... Uh, he was able to do that was he lived by exception. Other people ran it, were accountable and responsible, and they brought to him the things that he should look at. Okay, yeah. But it sounds like just spinning plates. It, that's a very good analogy, but actually getting somebody else, getting the plate spinning, then walking off and getting somebody else, showing somebody else how to do it. Now, the weird thing is, uh, you give somebody something else to do, they won't do it as well as you but unless they're packing your parachute, it doesn't matter. Mm. Uh, because, right, here's, here's some maths for you, right? If you've got 100% ability, there you go. If you can get four other people to work to 80% of their ability, then you've got four, eight, 320 plus your 100. Suddenly, if you can delegate and accept 20% error, you've got 420% of what you had before. Wow. Amazing. And it's, and it, it's, when I'm working with people like that, it's two-pronged. It's teaching the people who have been used to uh, not having authority and, more importantly, weaning the leader off having to be into everything. And that was my next question is, you know, how long do people who are not in the authority or not being delegated to remain in a post where they feel they could do more? Well, many, many people do because there's that comfort. And also when you've got a job and particularly in different environments, you don't, you don't take the risk. You take the money, not the risk. The really good people, guess what? They're gone. And then you're going, I just can't get good people. I said, well, maybe you just can't keep good people. It wasn't Richard Branson uh, was asked the question, what if we train our people and they leave? And his response was, what if we don't train them and they stay? <laughs> It's very true, isn't it? Yeah. Because, you know, if you look now at the statistics about engagement in the workplace, it's a woeful place. <laughs> you know, it's something like only 20% of people are properly engaged at work. And a lot of it, I think, it comes down to leadership. I have to agree with you. When Why do people leave businesses? Again, you do a bit of reading and it'll tell you that I think the statistics are where to leave and top of the list is my manager. Yeah. Uh, next on the list is other people's poor performance has not been dealt with. Yeah. Yeah. And then way down the line is, is money. Yeah. 
So people actually leave for, for different reasons. What's really interesting is in, when I was doing the purest coaching, and I do a little bit of it now, the number of times I'd be coaching somebody and the outcome of the coaching was they left the business they were in because they were shown that they, people think they don't have choice, but they do. They were shown choice. You know, the classic, I can't come out uh, this evening. Actually, what you should be saying is I'm choosing not to come out, but we don't. But one, one we think we have no choice or secondly, we're not prepared to express choice. Yeah. And it's the same with time. We think we don't have time. Yeah. But actually, we choose to spend our time a certain way. Mm. I think. So when I'm, when I'm working with boards or I'm working with individuals, one of the starting points is uh, language and what language we use. And things like don't express this as negative expresses a positive and don't hide behind distortion or deletion say what you actually mean uh, i i can't do that no i won't do that now explain why you won't do it yeah and people tend to hide a lot they do until they're shown that they don't have to there's a reason for it there's actually a a psychophysiochemical reason that we don't make choices. Stay with me. At any point in time, there are two million pieces of information hitting you. There's the light that's touching your right eyebrow now. There's the fact that you just stroked your cheek. There might be a little bit of noise in the background, but you're blocking it all out because you're talking to me. You can cope with, uh, I think it's 32, 32 bits of information. So in order to survive, we automatically filter an awful lot out. And then that translates into how we engage with the world. You go back to that man. How are you? Well, he could tell me exactly how he is, or he can say, I'm fine. Because I'm fine gets him out of that situation and moves him on. Yeah. But it's also why it's not why he stopped to talk to you in the first place. Yeah. 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 So I suppose it, it, that's he's filtered it out because it's not the topic of conversation. Or... Uh, he has either consciously filtered it out, he's probably unconsciously filtered it out. Mm. Because the unconscious filter is, I know what my response is when asked that question. Mm. Yes, yeah. okay, yeah. From years of practice. Not even, it's conditioning. Yeah. Because yeah. if he told me, I would, why are you telling me all this? All right, I'm fine. You know. <laughs> so you take that, that bag of numbers that I had, and I, don't, I, I stay with the numbers. Um, so... When I go into somewhere, I'll say, well, give, give me the other person in the room, which are the, the uh, reality and the aspirations of the business expressed in numbers, because that's a language I can understand very clearly. And then I'll overlay that with what I'm hearing and observing and seeing and, and smelling and just and tasting in the room to find out what's going on in the business. Yeah. Life beyond the numbers. Yeah. Uh, the, I think the big challenge is being be prepared to take the risk with the questions you ask. So I go into any assignment with the, well, I, I'm, um, part of the ethics of the various things I've trained in is uh, do the best for the person. I'm master of my own mouth and therefore uh, I will work to the best of my ability to help them but it may cause uh, some uh, friction. Mm -hmm. So I go in with the view that actually if, if the friction isn't right for them, uh, they'll uh, back off or they'll ask me to leave. 
So I won't be cautious in questioning and speaking because that's also tends to be, oh, well, nobody told me that. Well, I didn't know that was a problem because they kept it from me. Well, we can't be having that. No. And I mean, to get under the skin of things and open things up, sometimes ruffling feathers is, is probably a way of getting people to talk. I would, I would have said more blow drying them with a head, ruffle, no, because you might damage a feather. Okay. But you, but you, can, but you can raise them without, yeah. with, don't damage people is, yeah. is an absolute principle. Yeah. And if you take somewhere, uh, take someone somewhere that's difficult, bring them back. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And John, teams that work together for a long time, they can sometimes morph into one another. I suppose, almost, and not think differently or suffer from groupthink. Group, that's a really interesting one, Susan. Until I think, oh, when was the first, when was the first motor car? I think, well, the, fir- the earliest uh, piece of mobility was in 1776. It was a vehicle that weighed two tonnes and would travel at two miles an hour. But when cars first arrived, you had to have a man walking in front of you uh, with a red flag because they were dangerous, because everybody knew they were dangerous. Hello. When the first railway carriages were put out with people in them, trains were not allowed to go over, I think it was 50 miles an hour, because it was a known fact that at over 50 miles an hour, all the air was sucked out of the carriage and you would suffocate. Those are kind of extremes of groupthink. So they're a belief that uh, becomes common and nobody's quite sure where they came from, uh, but nobody challenges them. It's the way we Um, always did it. Yeah. And I can find myself sometimes working with just a fabulous organisation that has looked after its people so well that they've all been there 25 years. They may even have joined the firm and never worked anywhere else. And sometimes it's a piece of enlightenment that says, let's bring somebody in from outside because we don't know what we don't know. And that that can be a commonality, particularly when you're looking at organisational structure. We do it this way, but we're not quite sure why. Yeah. Is, is there a better way? Yeah, yeah. And that, yeah, that's great. And I suppose having a bit of diversity in a management team helps as well. And I think diversity is much more than what my nationality is. It's, it's diversity of thought. It's, that's interesting. I, I use a thing uh, that I've used for a long time. Uh, it's called Honey and Mumford Learning Styles. Hmm. And it, it gives you preferences. And it, it's really simple. You can do these fabulous things that give you eight pages of results. This tells you uh, what your preferences are, and it breaks you down into activist, a reflector, theorist, and pragmatist. And people go, oh, I am an activist. No, you have a preference. And whenever I start working with the management team, I'll put them through that process just to understand what's the dynamic in the room. And that is a really useful step forward, is to understand uh, how do people accept information? How do they communicate? And it tends to run deeper than purely their learning style. And it's amazing the number of brilliant leaders who have got a very, very strong activist preference who are supported by good reflector theorists. So the activist says, great, fantastic, we're going this way. And the, usually the accountant goes, fantastic, we haven't got any money. Yeah. So then you have to go back and create the situation where the activist can, can use that person's skills to the maximum. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm one of those uh, people who prefers to reflect. Yeah. 
you imagine a team that's been working together and have never really understood that dynamic when it's presented to them. And even, even the individual, when you present to an extreme activist and a zero reflector, what those, what it is suggesting, then it gives them the opportunity to consciously reflect or consciously ac accept that they've just gone charging over the hill with nobody behind them. Yeah. Mm. So, so part of it is self-understanding. Well, it's holding the mirror up, isn't it, John? Yeah. 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 And do people take this well? Uh, pretty well i'm trying to think now when is it when is it when is it not uh, i can think of one guy in the last 10 years or so but he was special <laughs> <laughs> fair uh, enough here we are. It, majority of people they've not been told they have to work with me or somebody like me they tend to be the leaders in the business so they've chosen yeah 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 so it's their choice and actually they've invested because whilst I work a third of my time on a not-for-profit basis, the other two-thirds is pretty costly, yeah, as it should be. They say that uh, you're an expert after 10,000 hours. Yeah. Well, I'm just coming up to 90,000. So, oof, bloody hell. So they've chosen, and therefore they tend to be have bought into it. It doesn't mean that somebody who has chosen, particularly an activist, will choose, and then partway through will go, I'm really not liking this. But you work with them to bring them through it. But there's always going to be a little resistance, I think, when you start a journey of change anyway. Yeah. Yeah. A journey of change is interesting because what I tend to do is work in this board advisor non-exec capacity. And it's for another specific reason. And that is consistency, which I think is probably a very underrated word. So I could turn up and I could uh, look at your organisation and analyse it and give you a report probably with a really nice cover on the front with your logo and a conclusion and take the check and go. But what I prefer to do is to work with you on the implementation stage. And a chunk of that is consistency. The number of times guys will uh, go on a course or uh, they'll come up with a new spreadsheet for tracking opportunities and you know where it's going. It's going to be used for two months and then disappear. Whereas better if you help somebody design organisational change and then you're there as their conscious and facilitator. Yeah. And it also shows that you have a vested interest in it working, you know, that you're committed. I put to, the effort in. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're not and, and, like the consultants often. It was always the joke. They'll come in, they'll, you know, do that me. report and then they're <laughs> off and no one can ever figure it out afterwards. Yeah. No, you, you've got to be you've got to be in it. And I'm interested, fascinated by both how businesses work and how people work in them. And it's great to see things move and to see some, some things go back two steps before they go forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said you would come back to something called the Dunbar number. Oh, oh yeah, wow. So it's a guy called Robin Dunbar. I was reading something recently, uh, an article, and uh, halfway through, I think, oh, this is an awful lot like the Dun Dunbar. And I read, read to the bottom, and the article was written by Robin Dunbar. So he's a guy who... and he. he, he Nothing has ever been invented. The words of Francis F. Dewardill, former head of the Copyright Office in uh, the US or the Patents Office. And so he's probably regurgitated something. It's really tidy. There is there's a big Dunbar number and a small Dunbar number. So the big Dunbar number is about 150 people. It's the number of relationships you can maintain. It's the size of a medieval village before you get inbreeding. It's the size of a Roman cohort. 
the point where the leader knew people's names, probably knew their wives' names. So that's the big number. Uh, Macintosh, the guy who actually made Macintosh, has had it. Uh, he's supposed to have, uh, he'd build a factory and fill it to about 100 people. And then when it got to about 100, he'd break it into two factories. So it always stayed below 150. So that's a big Dunbar number. When you're looking at management teams, there's the small Dunbar number, which is five to seven. And it's the uh, size of an SAS unit or a terrorist cell. And it's the size where you can become intimately trusting with the other person. And so you tend to find a CEO, then you go COO, CFO, CTO, a head of marketing, a head of people, six people. And as an organization grows and as you help somebody let go, you say, you've got 100 people working for you. Nod and smile and go and have coffee with 95 of them, but work with five. Because those five should be making sure that the other 95 are doing what they're supposed to be doing. So Dunbar number. Mm. And, and, and that, that helps people understand the structure that will help their business perform and stop people from overlapping. But more importantly, it's where the, the shields interlock. You know, those Roman soldier armadillos, making sure that the, there are no gaps, but that you don't have to do everything. Mm-hmm. I like that. That's a very simple message, mm. but very strong message. You Dun- don't Robin- have to do everything. Yeah, Robin Dunbar, brilliant. Uh, great read. Yeah. Cool. And John, I read somewhere that one of the things that gets you out of bed every morning is being able to travel. Oh, oh yeah, thank you. Slightly less in the last 15 months, Susan. I'm very lucky I'm married to uh, a woman who loves traveling as well. So even in these dark days, we're sitting here plotting and looking for interesting things to do and places to go. So we had to cancel a Trans-Siberian Express twice now. And we're looking at just other things. Yeah, just we'll, we'll find a way to travel. Any favorites? Um, but- I love Bhutan because it's, it's a Buddhist country. It, it, it's got to be Shangri-La. So surrounded by mountains, strong uh, kinghood, essentially. And one of the key measures of the country's performance is gross national happiness. And people go, yeah, get off. Go there. They're just happy people. I love India. Uh, My wife lived in Japan. Japan's an incredible place. And it makes you think about why is it incredible. So you go to Japan and you think, Oh, it's, it's too conformist. It's too regimented. And people will not cross the road until the green man says. They just, they, they cannot. Um, but my take on it was actually it's everybody has a common sense of commitment to everybody else. So nobody will step out of line because they don't want to upset anybody else. They, they want to be able to give on an equal footing to everybody. It does create a homogeny but also it creates a, a capitalist structure that looks 10, 20, 30, 40 years ahead rather than six months. I was watching a programme recently about how babies and, and kids between the age of zero to five form. Yeah. And that was really interesting because in Japan, they send an 18-month-old or two, two-and-a-half-year-old maybe out to buy food on his own. 
yeah. or her own as a way of bringing them into society and you're kind of go how the hell can they do that but when you say about the traffic lights and nobody will yeah there's just that understanding that this is how the society works uh sarah my wife would, would tell you uh she left i think she left a phone on a train well that's gone no it isn't she knew she could contact the train company and it will have been handed in at one of the stations and yes it had been because you do that Fabulous society. No, the world's world's a great place. Lived in East Africa. That was uh, wild. Love Italy. Go to Ireland enough, but again, not enough in the last 15 months. So uh, stir crazy, but spending a bit of time wandering around the UK as well. Yeah, great. And then photography has become, or has always been maybe, a passion of yours. Mrs. Lavin took me to a school trip. So that would be 1963. That was my first camera. So I've always had a camera. And again, it's understanding uh, that you can create time. So I created enough time to move that along. And I've exhibited a couple of times. I'll do uh, branding shoots for people. I love shooting weddings because it's the most intense 10 to 12 hours you can have in your life. And you're going to get feedback. Oh, boy, you're going to get feedback. But that's taken me to England, Ireland, Italy, just places. And I guess the understanding of people oh, yeah. helps in, in that situation as well to capture them. Yeah, I had a, a wedding, a fabulous wedding with um, eight mature bridesmaids, all dressed in red, fabulous red. And I had about 15 minutes with them beforehand. And it just reached the stage where they're coming down the aisle and I just said red arrows and they knew exactly. And they just fanned out like that. Oh, wow. That was the picture. Yeah. Because when you're doing a wedding, uh, you might take two and a half thousand pictures. There's only one. There's always one picture where the mother-in-law, the bride, they all go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So just the other 2,499 are just your yeah, sad babies, really. <laughs> <laughs> but And people are always communicating then as well, John, aren't they? Even if they're not speaking. One of the principles of NLP is you cannot not communicate. And some people call it body language. There's, there's a guy called Albert Morabian in 1956 did the initial study that in, this is non-scientific language, that within a communication, the words are 7%. The tonality, the voice is 38%. And all the other stuff, that crossing arms and, and staring out the window is 55%. So think of it this way. Uh, you send somebody an email, you're communicating with 7% of your bandwidth. Guess what? They misinterpret it. You ring them, you start to build up a better chance of communicating properly. You, you probably get to, so that gets to 45%. You probably get to about 75% or maybe 80% on a Zoom call. Hi, I am wearing trousers. Uh, but to get to the full fat, you've got to be in the room with them. I had a, a cracking one. I live in an apartment building and I live on the top floor. I was coming down on the lift and it stopped two floors down. And a man and a woman got in and I think they were Japanese. And the lift was a little untidy. And she turned to him and she said something in her local language. And I said, right, I'm not having that. So as we went down, I said, well, you may very well say that. Uh, but actually, I think the buildings looked after really well. And the two of them went, oh, you speak Japanese. In fact, yeah, it was. You speak Japanese. I said, well, actually, I speak uh, 93% of all languages. The bit I don't speak are the words. <laughs> so 
so it's it's really interesting. Uh, there's things like eye accessing cues, understanding when somebody is remembering, or when not when somebody's lying, but when they're constructing, because somebody won't want to remember something difficult, and therefore they'll construct a different response. And sometimes it's useful to tune in on things like that. You do it automatically, but when you watch for it, sometimes it can help you to help that person. Because it could be that they'll answer and you'll go, great, but what aren't you telling me? Because you've picked up on a clue. And that's where listening is such an important skill as well. The observing and the listening. I do actually listen. I know today I'm talking, but there are odd occasions when I, and I, God, that's a difficult skill, isn't it? Because automatically you're thinking about your next question or you're actually uh, distilling and interpreting and uh, constructing yourself from the answer as it's delivered to you. Uh, silence is uh, one of the powerful, power, uh, uh, nature abhors a vacuum. So sometimes just leave the space and the individual you're talking to will elaborate. Always do it with the, the ethical intention of helping that person, yeah? And enjoy, yeah. Mm. And funnily enough, none of this was in my accountancy exams. And it wouldn't be today either, John. Yeah, oh, I resigned from the Institute. You resigned from the Institute? Yeah, it's 65 in August. I'm essentially no longer working as a chartered accountant. Okay. And I looked, at, I looked at where things are and the only things they can do, and I've got a lot of time for the Institute, but all they can do for me now is reprimand me or fine me. And also, I didn't like the direction that some elements of the uh, Institute's thinking were going in. So I thought, right, well, I'll leave that then. Mm. So I've been out. I've been out now for 15 months. <laughs> Has it made any difference to life? Uh, no, because whilst many of the people know I understand numbers, nobody's after to see my certificate. And the weird thing is they never asked to see my coaching certificate. My, nobody does that and nobody asks because, again, all my work is referral. So I come pre-qualified. And if you can build trust, then they trust. They're, they're after the 90,000 hours, not the certificate. OK, well, look, John, that's what we have time for today. That's been a nice trip around the world and around language and people's understanding of themselves and others. Thank you very much. It's been great, Susan. And it's, it's great to see where the journey's gone so far. I've got a while yet, so um, maybe we'll do this again in a few years. You've got a while yet, yeah. So <laughs> you said 65, but yeah. well, actuar- you're not stopping any day soon by the looks of it. I'm not, and actuarially, I've got another 19 years, so uh, I've got a lot to do. (laughs) I love it. Well, we'll definitely catch up again, John. All right, nice one. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. Imagine if every day you enjoy work, express yourself fully and exceed expectations. I believe we're all entitled to have this and that the future of work life will be changed by those who strive for and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and wider organisation. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and share it with someone you know who is curious like you.